The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we're sticking with the theme of bond ETFs making a comeback as investors continue to clamor for yield. We'll have another expert break down the biggest trends she's seeing in terms of bond flows, giving us the lowdown on single bond treasury ETFs, telling us why she thinks that perhaps high-yield products shouldn't be written off yet. Here's my conversation with Joanna Gallagos. She's the co-founder of Bond Blocks, along with Kim Arthur, president and CEO of Maine Management. Joanna, we've seen big inflows into your short-term Treasury ETFs. A lot of people talking about bonds being back. But do you really think investors should seriously start to increase their allocation to Treasuries? When a year ago, everyone was saying the 60-40 stock bond portfolio is dead. Yeah, well, that was a year ago before the Fed increased rates 425 basis points last, last year. So everything shifted in terms of yields year over year. And that number, that 5% number in the two-year is, is incredible. You know, we're at historic highs um, uh, for the two-year and the 10-year uh, spread. And it's, it's an interesting uh, time to make sure that you're doing everything you can to get your cash off the sidelines and get back invested for 2023. Cash has no value at all. My mother called and asked me about two years. Now you know we're, we're, there's a yield top if there ever was one. Robert, I hear about these two years. She always bought CDs her whole life. The only thing you do know, cash is a complete loser. People ask me about what to do all, all the time. I say the only thing is 100%. Is it 5%? Inflation, cash is a loser. Yeah, right? and also, you know, the short end of the curve is really intuitive as well because we're looking down um, about another 100 basis points of rate increases. That's what the market's estimating in to the market until around July. So as interest rates are going up, you know, people are a little uncertain about what's going to happen to bond prices, you know, really far out. So if you get into at least the short side, you know, six months or one year or under two years, again, an intu- it's an intuitive trade. This is not 2022. This is not even five years ago, yields are very fundamentally different. Kim, as an investment advisor, where do you stand on this whole bond picture? What's the right place for bonds in a portfolio now? Let's at least just start with the short-term treasuries that even my mother is talking about. Should we all just stop (laughs) worrying and buy two-year treasuries? (laughs) That's what my mother wants to do. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Joanna, good to see you too. Um, That's a great question, Bob. I think, uh, you know, we've got some fixed income allocations and in general they're yielding about five percent they're about a four-year duration uh they've got a barbell approach where just like you guys are talking about we're definitely in the short and uh for five percent and then we've got some barbelled with some longer dated treasury so no credit risk as a hedge against a recession but i would say to your question bob for for the uh, investors and your and and your audience, um, that one or two year return. What do you do when you get to the end of that period? You have the reinvestment risk, so it's it's a part of your allocation, but not the entire part. Because as we know, over the long haul, um, equities will significantly outperform fixed income, and they'll give you that inflation hedge on top of it. So in general, if you're getting four to five points right now, that's kind of your return stream that you're going to see. But then, like you said, the duration side, you have the reinvestment risk. 
So yeah. we, uh, you know, that's that's how we're looking at it. Yeah, I'm very conscious of that myself. That's what I told my mother. Good, good for the next two years, but we don't know what will happen after that. I want to give you a chance to explain bond blocks to us sure. before and, and how it works. Um, the key points are you own off-the-run treasuries. Uh, define that for us. Uh, you target duration. That's a little slippery concept. A lot of people have a hard time understanding duration. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you insist it's a lower cost. So explain how Bond Blocks ETFs work. Yeah, so Bond Blocks, the company, is the only issuer that's 100% focused on the fixed income investor and dedicated to launching new fixed income ETFs. So we don't have any, you know, uh, ties or tethers to sort of the legacy products that are out there. So when we looked at the Treasury space, we observed two things. One is, um, first of all, they needed to have a their, their price needed to be updated. It was this is a you know those treasury products have been in market for almost 20 years now, and no one had taken the time to update them to a price that was more of an institutional level. So we're bringing institutional pricing back to all investors, and we've when you say institutional, it. what does that mean? I mean, a lot it of these bond funds charge sometimes 15 basis points. What are you charging? Yeah, so we're charging three basis points three. on the okay. shorter side of, of the portfolio of the of the product set. So pricing we thought was really in need of being updated. That's important. But also what we looked at is we looked at risk. And we wanted to update, we wanted to put it on the label for investors to figure out how much interest rate risk are they taking, especially in markets like these. And we think it was the right call because it gives someone an easy way to look at their interest rate risk that's embedded in their treasury portfolio, which is expressed as duration and expressed in years. So the name of our product represents exactly how much risk you're taking. Six months, one year, two year, three year, five year. And we think that's more intuitive for people to, to, to put on this exposure in markets like this where we do have expected interest rate hikes right. coming. In, I want you to explain off-the-run treasuries because we had Alex sure. on last week. He had on-the-run treasuries, yeah. which is you have a two-year, and every month is a new two-year auction, and they roll into that new two-year auction. So you're not holding the old one. That's on-the-run. You have off-the-run. Explain what that means. What are you getting? So, um, so Kim actually made a good point. Like, if you buy a single bond... Um, in the market, not an ETF, but a single bond, you are going to hold that bond to maturity and you're going to get back par of that bond and you're going to have, you would have gotten the coupons of that bond all through that maturity. But then when one year ends or two year ends, no matter, depending on how long that bond was bought for, you have to go back and buy another bond. And that bond is going to be at a new set of rates and a new, um, and an, at a new set of rates. What, what treasury ETFs do, all treasury ETFs do, is they buy um, bonds and they maintain that exposure to you. So they roll those treasuries forward for you. So if you always want to put on a one-year treasury exposure or a two-year treasury exposure, treasury ETFs are the easiest way to do that. The difference most, the difference between an on-the-run portfolio and an off-the-run portfolio is, first of all, the bond blocks products have both on-the-run and off-the-run um, bonds in their portfolio. It's both. On-the-run is just representative of when a bond is first issued, it's the it's the the first issuant purchase of those bonds, and then off the run is like once a bond has been bought and sold a bunch of times, you can still buy it in the market, but it's just something that's past its first issue. But in your two-year target duration, yeah, XTWO, what are you owning exactly in this? You're, it's what a portfolio, portfolio of U.S. Treasury bonds, right. and it can have a variety of different maturities in that. But what you're getting is you're getting a, you're getting a specific yield and you're getting a specific duration. Yeah. So the two-year right now is is yielding close to five percent in the XTWO, um, and you over time, let's say in two years from now, um, uh, you were to update that portfolio. Bondblocks does it for you. We roll it forward for you, so you can have a persistent yield over time. You don't have to right. have the inconvenience of trying to go buy a single two-year bond and. and 
we also are specific about the And I want to explain duration to people because it's okay. a hard concept to get hold of. Okay. Duration is not the same as maturity. Duration is how sensitive you are uh, to interest rates, right? Yep. So as I mentioned before, the market right now is pricing in, depending on the probability, about another 100 basis points of interest rate hikes. So that's 1% more of interest rate hikes. And that goes somewhere up to July so to, um, to, to get a time frame on it. So what you'd be concerned about, you just take our one-year X1, X-O-N-E. Um, the one-year target duration ETF by bond blocks will, will make sure that you have stable duration in that portfolio. So your risk is exactly one year. And what that means is that for every 100 basis points or 1% of interest rate increases that happen, the price of a bond is, will typically go down 1%. So it helps you understand the volatility how do you of your get, price. How do you ensure that you're getting a one-year duration? What do you have to do? Yeah, so every month we rebalance the portfolio. We buy and sell bonds that um, create that exact duration. And so every month we rebalance it and make sure that we buy it. We, we sell some bonds that aren't, aren't delivering the one-year the one right. duration, and we, sell, and we buy some that are. And the simple rule, this is the, the way I've always understood yeah. this, the dumb-dumb way, I, I, I think. If you have a bond that has a two-year duration, uh, for every 1% increase in interest rates, the price will go down 2%. Correct. Right. Correct. So it's a five-year for every 1% increase, five-year duration, for every 1% increase in interest rates, it'll go down 5%. Yeah, and that's what Kim was mentioning. If you go out on the longer side of duration, you're taking on more price risk. And some people want to do that right now because either they want to put a hedge in for if, if, if inflation does slow down and um, we get on top of what's going on, but the intuitive thing that's going on is people are investing on the shorter side of the curve because the volatility is very low yeah. um, comparatively. So what's actionable in bonds right now? I mean, people people ask me all the time, other than my mother wants to buy the two-year treasury, is there something else actionable? I know we've been yeah. talking about inflows into short, short uh, maturity treasury ETFs. What about like longer-dated treasuries, for example? What about... Yeah high yield. Is there a place in the portfolio for that right now? Yeah, um, there is definitely a place in your portfolio to take on more, um, more interest rate risk with longer dated tre treasuries, but not more credit risk. However, we think credit risk is really, is really compelling right now, especially in what might feel unexpected in high yield bonds. So high yield corporate issuers um, are probably ha ha have gone through something very different than they have in past distressed markets. So if we're Think that it, we think an economic downturn is coming up, you would think that somebody that um, is a high-yield issuer may have trouble repaying their debt. And that's just not the case of the fundamentals in these, in these high-yield issuers. Their fundamentals are relatively strong versus pre-pandemic levels. Um, they had a chance to refinance their debt during, during the pandemic. At really low at rates. really low Rock rates. Um, their leverage ratios are, are typically uh, are, are, are much stronger than they were in other, other downturns. And we think that investors um, have been mis, uh, mischaracterizing high yield, even against equity risk right now. And with these yields, so, um, you know, on the, on the very riskiest side, uh, high yield is in triple C's is yielding over 13%. So comparatively, um, Kim was also mentioning probably an investment grade uh, investment, which is targeting around 5.5% of yield. Yeah. You know, high yield, you're looking at, um, in some cases, on, you know, single B, 8.75% and double B's, you know, six, over 6%. So there's, there's, there's a difference yeah. in yield, and it's, you're getting a lot in compensation for the risk right now. Uh, Kim, what about that? How about high yield? I mean, Joanna has a point. This is, if this is a downturn, it's a pretty strange downturn because normally credit risk emerges 
rather notably in a downturn. A lot of people seem to believe that, and yet we don't actually see it. So uh, talk to Joanna's point here, or, or are you on the same page with her on that or not? Yeah, no, I am on the same page. And what I would add is one other thing. People's most recent experience was 2008 and 9, and that's why they have that recency bias that Joanne is talking about. Um, 2008 and 9 was a train wreck. The corporations were broke, the banks were broke, and the consumer was broke. We had a credit crunch, and a credit crunch is a hard landing and really impacts high yield that has credit risk. Like she said, this is a much different setup. Particularly, it's been more of a rolling recession, so you haven't had everything hit at the same time. You had autos in 2021, housing at the beginning of 2022, goods inventories in the middle of 2022, uh, commercial real estate here in the back end, technology. So it's been this rolling recession, which like she said, it allows for that credit uh, to be not as big of a risk. Um, I would say that you know you you get paid three points over treasuries for those um, high yield that she said, and you can go up to triple C's or you're getting more. That gives you your cushion, your protection that you're going to get. Um, and you know there's other there's other alternatives out there that can give you even more protection uh, when that um, you know for that situation. Uh, but yeah, I I would agree with her. Um, we're yeah. looking also at uh, emerging market debt. We think that there's a lot of interest in that and the price uh, valuation, the yield that you get, and Bob, on top of it, it's really highly correlated to the dollar topping, which it looks like the dollar is in the process of topping. It's down almost 10% since last year in the fourth quarter. Don't you have the same problem, though, with emerging market debt when you have when rates go up, emerging market debt has a problem, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that the typical? Yeah, most of the emerging market indices are, are heavy on sovereign debt, and they're very sensitive to interest rate risk. And so another um, way we looked at the market last year was we launched a, an emerging market debt product that has lower duration, you know, sort of a similar theme of, of giving more precision to that risk characteristic. And so the product XEMD that we have um, has actually reduced that duration by almost half. And we saw it really play out in the month of January where um, the emerging market index, the traditional, you know, really had, I think it was up, you know, 4%. And it was, you know, mainly related to the interest rate risk of the, of the U.S. economy. So taking that out or dampening that is, we think, probably something prudent, again, facing more interest rate hikes. Kimmy, you've got your own uh, ETF suite up there. You have the main buy right ETF. I want to give you a chance to talk about that. You, this uh, invests in Global equity uh, combined with an option writing strategy. That was very popular uh, last year. Describe what we own here. Yeah, definitely, Bob. So in general, for the alternatives in call writing, this buy W, um, it, it excels in a flat to down tape because you have the volatility that allows you to get paid during that period. So in a year like last year, when Fixed income was down and equities were down. This buy W was up 1%. Um, in a year like this year, it's up 5% already. But basically, if you go back to keeping it simple on high yield, what's the premium that you get paid over treasuries to give you downside protection? I mentioned three points. If you do the math and you annualize it out between now and the end of the year, you've got six points of protection from high yield. In a call writing strategy like this buy W, you actually have twice as much of protection over treasuries. You've got six points instead of three, 
But you get an additional component, Bob. You get this in the money. We can write these calls that are in the money. So if you add the premium over treasuries plus the in the money, there's about 13 points of downside protection or 2x what you get in high yield. So now in up tapes, you don't want to have this type of a strategy because you're going to cap your upside. But down tapes, flat tapes, this is where these alternatives can, uh, these call writing like the buy W can definitely excel. Yeah, and everybody, th these were very, very popular uh, products uh, last year. Joanna, I wonder we could talk about a, a favorite topic of mine, which is the moderniza modernization of the bond market. Uh, equities became largely electronically traded 20 years ago. You see down here on the floor. When I got here on the floor in 1997, there were 4,000 people around us. Mm. They traded 80% of the NYSE on the floor. Today, yeah. there's, I don't know, 200, 200 something. Uh, they trade 15 to 20% of the year. So big change. But a lot of bonds still trade over the counter. It's amazing to me. Uh, how much progress are we making on making the bond market more electronic? And do we want to make it more electronic? What's standing in the way of becoming more electronic? Just yeah. sort of update us. It's been, it's been a slower transition for um, the fixed income markets to go more electronic and to modernize. Um, what's really interesting about the intersection of that time in equities all, um, so there was an intersection between ETFs and that time in equities. As they started to digitize on the exchanges, ETFs came, kind of came into play, and they actually worked really well together. I don't know, you, I'm sure you remember, but ETFs, when they traded on the New York Stock Exchange, were in a room somewhere else where they were trading electronically. So they had some of the first, you know, um, beginnings of what an, an electronic, a full yeah. electronic market could be for the New York Stock Exchange at the very least. And then all of the interaction of ETFs over that time. Uh, bond ETFs are 20 years old today, and they trade the same way that you know some of the, the technologies in fixed income that are that are just starting to grow really fast. It's just portfolio trading, things where you're trading baskets of bonds um, in a customized way with clients. That's going. That's moving very fast. There's new trading platforms that are helping create more transparency to bond buyers, um, and it just sounds really familiar to the way ETFs had grown with yeah. the equity markets 20 years and ago. And does the sheer number? I always hear ago. from the bond guys. Well, there's too many QCIPs, Bob. There's thousands and thousands and thousands, and it's yeah. hard to actually electronify that. Is that just a little bit of a canard, or is, is there any truth to that? Is, what, I, what's impeding this from happening faster? You know, there, faster? Are, there are thousands of QCIPs, but there's also a lot of technology that's been built in, in fixed income market making in the last 20 years, where, there, where that is not as, as difficult as a problem to solve. You, yeah. you, you can e easily imagine that. Um, and then, you know, I, I've got to put a shout out for the ETF markets themselves. They've been operating for 20 years. Fixed income ETF markets have weathered the GFC, they've weathered um, other different volatility events. And I think this last one in the pandemic really helped clients see what it's like to have something trade in, um, in, a, in, a, in a structured way, like in a portfolio, Even when the underlying on a, a QCIP by QCIP basis, because you could really source liquidity when you needed yeah. it. Even when the underlying products yeah. may be a liquid. The ETF, ETF trades. is trading. It's visible. It's amazing how the market figures that out, isn't it? It, it is. It's like it's magical almost. And so I think that to some degree, you know, I, I want to maybe plant the flag for ETFs. Having all of these portfolios in existence and allowing the markets to figure it out over time, build the technology around them, and then for these products to have been tested through so many different events, it just needed, the product needed to exist for people to interact with it. At BombBlocks, we see the next generation of that happening. We think it's going to accelerate really quickly from here. And what we observe is there aren't enough fixed income ETFs, if you could imagine that. 
there's only about 15, 70% of ETFs in the market are fixed income. And that's why we wanted to cut it all up into very, very granular pieces so people could exchange all that risk and we can see the next version of the modernization. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of our podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation with Kim Arthur from Maine Management. And Kim, I, I want to just steer the conversation more towards ETFs in general. I did a whole thing last week about some recent studies on passive versus active trading. Um, some studies showed that 91% of the trading is still done by active traders, only 9% is done by passive investors. And I brought this up because there's a lot of concerns that passive is getting to be such a large percent of the ownership of the market that it may make the markets less efficient. And yet, while there's a growing number of people interested in ownership of equities using passive indexes, the actual trading amounts are, are, are pretty small. I thought that was rather startling. Only 9% is roughly uh, a, a, a passive trading uh, in the market every day. Yeah, I, I think, Bob, it's, it's, it's a staggering stat because it tells me two things. There's been lots of people that have said, OK, these, these, these ETFs are going to take they're going to cause dislocation in the market because people aren't paying attention to price. They're just adding them to index. They're paying too high. And what that report that you talked about pointed out, it said, OK, wait a minute, if that's the case, why haven't the active managers been able to arb that inefficiency. If it actually does exist, those active managers should be outperforming on a one, three, five, 10 year basis. You know better than anyone, they have not. It's, it's the exception to the yeah. rule for the people that have outperformed. So it clearly tells me that this passive uh, kind of uh, tailwind is going to continue to much bigger than one third that it is, and it's not causing dislocation or mispricings in the market. On a separate subject, um, one of the things that I, I noticed last year, again, is, is that while ETFs were getting inflows overall, even in a down year, mutual funds were getting outflows. And there seemed to be an additional insult uh, to the injury here. A lot of the mutual funds had very high capital gains. and. There was a lot of outrage about this. This is sort of underst understandable because there was so much chaos in the markets that a lot of the fund managers were, of course, changing their portfolios around. And this created a lot of capital gains. Did you, how did you feel as a guy who runs, as an investment advisor who runs primarily ETFs, watching these very high levels of capital gains? Yeah, Bob, it was the ultimate insult on top of injury. We hadn't seen it since 2008, where you had losses in the underlying mutual funds and they delivered a capital gains. And the, the number of people in the fourth quarter, Bob, for clients that we have, we've got, you know, 1,200 clients that we, that we talk to. Uh, the number of those clients that had no idea that they were in mutual funds, not through us because we only use exchange traded funds, but that still had legacy mutual funds and that didn't realize they were going to get a capital gains tax, it was sheer panic that came in. And again, it shows you the superior uh, construction of these exchange traded funds where they can they can effectively do, you know, they can do customized creates and redeems to make sure that you will not get that capital gains. 
Um, so you know, I, I think that was another big eye opener, another one that will continue to move the pendulum in favor of exchange traded funds and away from mutual funds. It, it, I'll tell you something else that showed me the stickiness of financial assets. You, you get high capital gains and you still the cost of mutual funds is just demonstrably higher. I did a story a few years ago about and I forget the number, but how many mutual funds there are mutual funds still charge two percent. Uh, that are out there. And you think, like, how is that possible? Who's going to own a 2%, even an actively managed mutual fund? How, who's going to do that? And yet there are. There are people who buy these things and obviously walk away or don't know that much. And it's one of the most frustrating things to see how we talk about this conversion. Now, money's coming out of mutual funds and ETFs. But, you know, Kim, it's pretty slow. There's still $20 trillion in mutual funds. There's only $7 trillion in ETFs. That gets smaller. That difference gets smaller every year. But it's, got, it's been pretty slow happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's two things behind it. One, inertia is a powerful, powerful factor. So you've got a lot of advisors that just grew up with mutual funds, have allocated that to their clients, and they just won't move them. You know, slowly they'll move them, like you said, when they're shocks to the system like last year, uh, losses on top of losses. Um, and then there's obviously that uh, economic incentive. There's, there's still trailer fees, 12B1 fees that advisors will get paid off of. And they're supposed to be doing the right thing and putting the client first, but a lot of times they let the, uh, the dollar signs kind of dictate where they're going. So. You are right. I am constantly amazed um, what, that, that you find people that still have overpriced mutual funds paying way more than they should. But again, that means opportunity for you know, firms yeah. that go out there and say, hey, there's a better alternative. All right. Couldn't have to leave it there, Kim. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Kim Arthur is the president and CEO of Maine Management. Everybody, thank you for listening to the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.